Hey guys, welcome back to Mount Murders. I'm Heather. And I'm Dylan. How's it going? Had a couple of drinks. You had some drinks. Just two or three. Or something. I lost count. You have a shot over there. That's so. not true. This is not a drunk episode. I need to warn people up front. This is like a tipsy episode. This is a, maybe a, what is it, buzz driving, drunk driving episode? Yeah. Yeah. We're feeling a little loose. Yeah, we had a good evening. We did. We met up with Sunday, who mm. is one of our friends and Mountain Murders patrons and just a big fan. Yeah, I love Sunday. We love Sunday. I do. It's and incredible. Was, it's awesome in town, name. And so we met up with Sunday and we had a couple of drinks. Yeah. Some drinks. Drank with the A. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been a really good evening. It has. I've had fun. You've been working a lot. <sighs> I don't even want to talk about it. I know. Hey, you know, I did craft some things I want to talk about in future episodes. Okay. Yeah, you know, I'm going to call people out by name. Okay. Yeah. So we had to find time to sit down and record a brand new Mountain Murders episode. Yes. Are you going to give them the full history of this story? Well, this story that we're going to be talking about today, this case, we actually brought to our live show. Hey! So, if you missed the live show, this is the case you missed. We've already fleshed it out for you. So we have. So, we'll be talking about it, and it's a it's a good one. And I will come to each and every one of your houses and do this live. Oh, God. For how much money? For none. Just for the experience. Oh, you just want to be more confident in your public speaking skills? Maybe I want to see these people Face to face. All of the people? All our listeners. Maybe they don't want to see you face to face. But I love them. <laughs> you do? <laughs> Are you going to kiss them on the face? Or well, what? I would hug them. and It would be like a grandma hug. I promise. And um, I would shake hands. Okay. And kiss baby. <laughs> I don't really know where this episode's going to end up. Are we going to end up in some weird downward like rabbit hole spiral of like weird shit? Because I'm feeling a little loose. From my drinks. Yes, I was going to call it the natural episode. And um, and I have some wine. Yes, you do. And a Mountain wine Murders Tumbler. Times. And I'm drinking, yes. So I'm having my favorite cheap wine. Now, it's not like super bottom dollar wine because it's like $14 a bottle. Whoa. But I, but I did use my Ingalls Advantage card. And so I got like, I think $2 off. But Hello. it's Seven Moons. Seven Moons is good. You're a wine drinker. And it's a blend, which I do like the blend, but this is the dark red blend, and it's delicious. So I'm going to be over here tasting my wine. Hey, Seven Moons is good, dude. It is I'm good. I'm sorry. I've tasted yeah. multiple high dollar, low dollar. Seven Moons is all right. It is. I think so. For cheap wine. Yeah, so once we get on the script, I think we're going to even out. You think so? I do. I do. Okay, well, that's good. We've just been cutting up and, like, having a weird evening, so I'm excited to see where this goes, Dylan. Yeah, we're cramming this in. We're going to be talking about Eric Rudolph. Okay, that's a big story. It is, especially here. We live in western North Carolina, as many of our listeners know, and this was a huge story in this area. Yeah, it's a pretty big deal. Now, where it takes place is roughly about, what, an hour and 20 minutes, hour and a half from where we live, but... And this story was pretty far-reaching. Yes, I think it was national news. Well, it's definitely. Well, it totally was. Right. But a lot of what we're going to be talking about is very local to us. True. So let's get into it. January 29th, 1998, at the New Women All Women Healthcare in Birmingham, Alabama, a FedEx box containing dynamite and nails is left in some bushes by the entrance. A nurse named Emily Lyons arrives at work around 7.30 a.m., where she and a clinic security guard, who is also an off-duty Birmingham police officer named Robert Sanderson, spot the suspicious package. As soon as Officer Sanderson... Leave that in. Fuck my life, I will. Leave it in. As soon as Officer Sanderson touched the package, it exploded, sending shrapnel through his body, killing him instantly. Pretty fucking horrific. It is, but you're saying, you're saying it in a whimsical voice. Am I? Like it's fun. 
Well, damn. Now you've just ruined the podcast, Dylan. Sorry about that. Thanks for calling me. Someone will complain. There will be a bad review. Yeah, but it's like, like Heather's voice is too whimsical when she's so talking about shrapnel. Yeah. But it, yeah, that's. Could you imagine just seeing some stuff and be like, oh, we need to check this out? And then it fucking blows up in your face and kills you instantly. I mean, that's a pretty powerful. Yeah. Explosive device. Yeah, that's not. Yeah, that's pretty dangerous. Emily Lyons was seriously injured, later losing an eye, and would be left with chronic pain and injuries. It was the first fatal bombing of an abortion clinic in the United States. That was a big deal. Was it was definitely a big deal. I mean, I, I remember this period, you know, it was such a big deal about abortion clinics and, you know, you had to, the people threat, you know, you had multiple threats. and Well, for was, whatever was, reason, in the 90s, and I mean, it's carried over, we see it today, but there was something about the, maybe the political climate, I'm not really sure, of the 90s, where we were seeing a lot of um, pro-choice movements, but they were turning very violent. Um, this was the first fatal bombing of an abortion clinic, but wasn't the first attempt. The same time, you know, just maybe a few years before, there was a murder and assassination of an abortion doctor, right, and his two escorts in Florida, right. I mean, so this was like brewing in the nineties. Oh, definitely, abortion was a key component of every election cycle. I remember, you know, as a young person. You know, it was, a, it was a big deal. You know, was it abortion or gay rights? It was an issue that really caught fire yes. and seemed like it really took off in the 90s because I don't remember a whole lot about, maybe it's my age, I'm not sure, but I don't remember a whole lot of people in the 80s being no. very vocal about no, no. being pro-choice and, and taking it a step further in that they're going to send a message right. with violence. Yeah, and I think this is uh, where you can make a, you know, you can point out how you can take these issues and they can keep just, you know, beating that drum and making a, a big deal until finally you get... Extremists? Extremists. You, you, you get these flares of violence and things that no one ever wanted, you know, on either side. But this is what happened. But this was stoked by more than just the uh, political rhetoric. Well, Which I'll get, get into, into later. That. Yes. A college student at the University of Alabama felt a blast and ran out of his dorm room. Jermaine Hughes noticed as everyone was running toward the devastation, a man walked calmly in the opposite direction. Now, this is a tip that investigators would later use to find the Boston bombers. Yeah, that's a big deal. The pre-med student jumped in his car and followed the suspicious man who was on foot and got a look at his face. Hughes then managed to pull over and phone police. Others that were overhearing Hughes' conversation with 911 started following the man who slipped into a wooded area and eventually led out to the other side where his vehicle was parked. Quickly, someone scrawled the license plate number down. The green pickup truck belonged to Eric Rudolph, who lived in North Carolina. Fucking Eric Rudolph. We're going to get into a little of Eric Rudolph's background. As you know, one of my favorite things when we're talking about true crime is that I really like to dive into the background. Eric Robert Rudolph was born September 19, 1966. He was born to parents Robert and Patricia Rudolph. The family lived in Merritt Island, Florida. There were six children, including Eric. Robert Rudolph was an aviation mechanic who had worked for NASA on the Apollo Project. Okay. He had also been a lay preacher working with a prison ministry. Patricia was at one point a nun novitiate. I think I'm, I'm saying it correctly. I'm not sure. But that's a period of training and preparation that one takes in order to decide whether or not they want to take the vows to be a nun. Okay. So she's basically gone through all of the training and had this period of time where she was trying to decide. Is Make this what sure. I want to do? This yeah. is what you want to do with your life and your future. Right, because it's a very strict lifestyle. It's a big commitment. It is. The paramet, ultimately she decides it's not for her. But the paramet working for a workers community in New York City, which was like a hippie type of compound, they focused on helping the sick and the poor. 
Patricia eventually left the Catholic Church and began gravitating toward more fundamentalist Christian sects, at one point getting pretty into the Pentecostal Church. In the 1960s and early 70s, the family held a lot of left-wing beliefs, including pacifism. They were adamantly opposed to the Vietnam War. They were strict naturopaths. I mean, people who knew the family said at one point Eric had broken his arm and his mom, Pat, refused to take him to the hospital. She just believed in like home treatment, holistic medicine. They didn't like doctors. They didn't like hospitals. They didn't want to put chemicals into their bodies. Everything would just work itself out. Basically, people like that think modern medicine is not for them and they have a better alternative. Yeah, they believe that if you just lay some kale on it, it'll just go away. Well, yeah, my mama used to say some rub some dirt on it and walk it off, you little bitch. Is that similar? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. I feel like the Rudolphs would have done well in Asheville. Oh, okay. I see. <laughs> so their kids going to be running around nowadays with measles? Yeah. Okay, yeah, cool. We'll get, yeah, we'll get to that. Awesome. Because <laughs> polio and measles are cool. Well, none of the kids were vaccinated. Nice. So you're on to something with that, Dylan. Wow. She practiced natural childbirth at home. Only her daughter was born in a hospital. And she helped deliver babies for others as a midwife. Okay. So, okay. They're like a hippy-dippy kind of family, which is fine. I'm kidding around, but there's there's something to some of that natural remedies and things like that. You know, some of that stuff works. Well, yeah. I mean, fuck Big Pharma. Yeah, fuck Big Pharma. We don't like Big Pharma, and, you know, there's a lot of drugs that they pump into your body that's really terrible for you. And so, yeah, if there's a natural way to heal the body, then do it. But come on, if your kid breaks a fucking arm... You're not going to take your kid to the hospital. Well, there's a stream of everything. You're just going to be like, oh, let that broken arm dangle. It'll heal itself. I mean, I don't know. There's there's a, like a line for me. There, Yeah, right. But I mean, yeah, I Big Pharma. Really judgy, but I'm just like, really? Take your kid to the fucking hospital. It broke his arm. Anything that you could grow, easily grow yourself, you know, and obtain through, you know, multiple means gets pushed to the wayside. But yes, at a certain point. You need to go to the fucking hospital, right? Right. Yeah. But here they are, birthing babies at home, putting some kale on the wound, praying away the injury. I don't know. Right. (laughs) So, yeah, if my kid breaks their arm and I don't take them to the hospital to get it set and all that, that's a little weird. In 1981, the family patriarch, Bob, lost his battle with cancer. Now, it is rumored that Patricia held firm beliefs that the government had a cure for cancer, but was withholding it as a means to control the populace. But Bob had refused chemo and was strictly trying natural medicines to battle the disease. Well, there's one of those case in point. After Bob's passing, Patricia moved along with the six children to their summer mountain home in the Nansahala Forest in Macon County, North Carolina. Okay, nice area. Nantahala means land of the noonday sun. Did you the, know that? The Nantahala? Yes. Because I've listened to other people from not from this area talk about Nantahala. Right. And if you're from <laughs> here, I'm saying Nantahala, but people will be like, Nantahala. It just depends, I guess, on where you're from, right? Oh, it's, it's just awesome having looked into this Rudolph story, listening to reporters nationwide talk about Nantahala. Right. Yeah. It's Nanhala, guys. Nanhala. Nanhala. <laughs> In the North Carolina area, the family was living primarily from Social Security checks. The family home had a generator, a water distiller to avoid the need for tap water or hooking into like a public water line. They also had a wood stove um, that they used to heat water for the radiator, a wood cook stove. I mean, they were essentially living off the grid. That sounds awesome. In some ways. To a degree. The Rudolphs grew their own crops, had livestock, and rarely left the family property to venture into quote-unquote town. Because if you've ever been out to the Nantahala Gorge, there's not a whole lot out there. No, you literally have to go to other places to get supplies and big stores and things like that. It's a very rural area. And you're going to have to drive probably a good 20, 30, maybe even 40 minutes to get to a grocery store. And there's like nothing out this way. Right. It's beautiful. 
And a lot of people know the area because of the Nanahala Outdoor Center. Yep. Great whitewater rafting, awesome fishing, kayaking. It's a gorgeous area, but yeah, it's pretty out there. Eric was enrolled at the Nantahala School. See, I can't even do it like you. Nantahala. In Florida, people described Eric as an energetic kid who was curious, inquisitive, and a walker. Like, he was always seeking adventure. So he's always outside. He loved the ocean and was always participating in some sort of water activities. Swimming, snorkeling, fishing, surfing. All the things you would do, you know, if you live by the ocean. As a youth, he had been a baseball player, very naturally athletic, so much so that his coach believed Eric could play college baseball. The coach had connections at Miami University and encouraged Eric to pursue the sport so he could maybe one day be on the team there. Eric's last high school in Florida had been in Homestead. In interviews, his mother recalls it being the first time Eric ran into serious problems in school. He was the minority in a mostly black and Hispanic school where she claims he was beat up and bullied. She admits during this time, Eric started to have some racist views. Uh-oh. As a mother, she let her kids think for themselves. So she didn't intervene or sway Eric from his racist beliefs. She thought it was something he would grow out of or maybe something he just needed to experience for himself. Again, she's pretending it's, I let my kids think for, my, for themselves, and yeah, we're mean, trying to be open-minded here, but at the end of the day, it's almost to a detriment, because we're going to see what comes from this. Well, yeah, to my kids, I'd be like, look, th- that group of people, they're asshole. That's bad what you're going through, but you can't ride off a whole damn race. There's assholes everywhere. Yeah, That's there's... <laughs> yeah, you just have to intervene as a parent and be like, you're having problems with, you know, a small group of people. That doesn't mean that the entire race is bad. She's basically just setting him up for this bigger problem. It's to his detriment. Rather than making him a free thinker. Right. Yeah. In North Carolina, things changed for Eric. Nantahala is an incredibly small rural school, and he stopped playing baseball, but he did continue his love for the outdoors. While at the Nanahala school, Eric and his brothers refused to give their social security numbers, stating they did not believe in them. At one point, Eric wrote a paper for class denying the Holocaust. Oh, hello. Who are these fucking people? He used a pamphlet belonging to his mother as a resource. Okay. So, yeah, that probably happened, right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where he's getting this information from. I don't know. If you're a Holocaust denier and you're listening to this, just come over here because I'm going to punch you in your wiener. And if you don't have a wiener, I'm going to punch you in where your wiener would be. Yeah, I think there's Those just... people are just fucking nuts. Way too many witnesses and everybody that saw all the stuff. Like entire continents of people. I have some strong feelings about people who right. get on the soapbox about like the Holocaust didn't happen. Yeah. Those people are trash. Okay, anyway. Right. He didn't want to have his picture taken. And then when the yearbooks came out, he refused to sign anyone's yearbook because, get this, he said he didn't want the government to have a copy of his signature that they could use against him one day. Because the entire government's out to get Eric Rudolph. Yeah. So I mean, no, what kind of kid, think about a ninth grader. Who's already in this mindset. 14, 15 years he old won't, that thinks this way. He won't give a social security number because he believes he's being tracked by it and he doesn't believe in it at all. I'm going to guess that he shares his mom's belief that the government can cure cancer and could have saved his dad, even though his dad openly denied any available treatment right? for holistic treatments. And then, yeah, I mean, this, and he's afraid the government could track him. Through a yearbook signature? Is afraid to sign a yearbook. So this is a mindset in a, a very young person that is pretty extreme. Some fucking paranoia. It really is. Because your little, like, have a nice summer, love Eric message is yeah. probably, how's that going to be used against I'm you? I'm going to guess that the government doesn't give a fuck about that. But that's all he can think about. See you next year. He doesn't <laughs> want any hard copies. No hard copies, Joe. He dropped out after the ninth grade and went on to get his GED. 
Now, during this period, after dropping out, he befriended a neighbor, an older man named Thomas Wayne Branham, who became somewhat of a father figure to Eric. He taught him fishing, showed him the best fishing holes along the Nantahala River, and survivalist skills. Eric became enamored with Branham's rustic lifestyle and the beauty of the Appalachian Mountains. Eric palled around with the Branham boys. Apparently, Branham had a couple of sons within the same you know, age range. Community members recalled the boys making homemade explosives and that they liked blowing shit up. Cool. What well, does that sort of sound fun? Well, yeah, <laughs> to a degree. Tom Branham was a man of radical politics who considered himself to be a free man. Oh, yeah. Meaning that he was free of the confines of state and federal law. Huh. He yeah. was a prepper and truly believed there was an impending revolution between the forces of good and evil taking an almost apocalyptic, ultra-conservative view uh, over the years. Yeah, that's healthy. Hey, but in the, in the same vein of that, it does not take a lot for our society to break down. I mean, honestly, Katrina took them three days to get ice down there. I mean, so there, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's, kind of things you see along the way that kind of reinforce these extremist views that it doesn't take a lot for if you're in an urban city urban environment for the food system to break down or for you know these various things the power grid could fail at any moment because it's 100 years old things like that you know or the zombie apocalypse well no the zombie apocalypse could be upon us i mean i feel like the walking dead really like had people thinking about prepping well, Ruby... I find preppers to be very interesting. They just are. in general. And I understand, like, wanting to be a prepper and maybe even believing, like, okay, the system could break down. We might have to really... It doesn't take a lot. ...rearrange the way we live. Right. But this impending, like, fight between good and evil. Right. I mean, I'm just like, dude, come on. Yeah, calm down with that. I think everyone should have two to three weeks of supplies on them, because it really could be a, a hiccup in our system. You know. Are we going to start stockpiling MREs? No, but maybe some <laughs> beans and water. Right? Just a little bit. But then, I mean, these people Dylan's go... Dylan's just stockpiling beer? <laughs> you gotta have uh, some cases. He's like, honey, I got this storage building. I filled it full of craft beer for us. But, you know, these people go along the way and they do see, see little hiccups in our society that I think reinforce their uh, viewpoint. And then you take, oh, the government's coming to kill you. And then you have, like, Ruby Ridge, Waco. You know, the, all these time, you know, these uh, examples of when the government handled it very poorly. And it did look kind of like the government was coming to, like, Take your guns or, you know, disrupt your family. Take your 50 pounds of beans that you have in your basement. Well, yeah. <laughs> just leave my beans, man. Well, Bronham stockpiled foods, weapons, and books. Among those books were many Nazi books. Oh, gosh. This is when Eric was introduced to Nazism and anti-Semitic beliefs. So he's going to throw down... Although it seems like he had some of that at home. Yeah, let's be honest. But I guess he attributes those beliefs to his time hanging out with Branham. Well, I think possibly that's just, I'm totally speculating. Possibly that's just reinforcing some things he had some elements of. Because any parents is just like, oh, he was a minority at school and, you know, somebody beat him up. Now he's a racist. I mean, come oh, on. Oh, by the way, here's my Holocaust denier pamphlet that you oh, should yeah. totally use for a resource. And bibliography for your fucking paper that yeah, you're writing so, for the ninth grade. <laughs> yeah, so let's let's be honest. Maybe all that didn't come outside of his home. Bronham was sued, and this is pretty funny, by the Heinz Company, as in Heinz Ketchup. Okay. For forging coupons. How does that work? I don't know all the details, but can you imagine forging enough ketchup coupons that you get sued by the fucking Heinz Company? That's a lot of... What are you doing with all that fucking ketchup? Are you stockpiling it? What is he, a first grader? That's a lot of 25 cent off a bottle of Heinz ketchup. Fucking lot of six-year-olds out there would be happy because they love to eat ketchup on So he's done that to such a degree, the actual company, Heinz, brought a suit against <laughs> yes. him. Yes. Okay. 
pursued him. I don't even know how you, how you do that. It was during this investigation that the ATF got involved and executed a search warrant on Bronham's property, where they seized parts of a machine gun, blasting caps, dynamite, and other bomb-making materials. Bronham was not home during the search, but Eric came over to watch the proceedings. Eric had to be removed from the property for referring to agents as Soviet Union troops. Oh, wow. Pat Rudolph posted Bronham's bail. Eventually, the pair would have a falling out, but not before Pat and young Eric attended Bronham's hearings in federal court in Brayson City. This event really set the stage for his anti-government beliefs. It was after having witnessed his friend, his father figure, this neighbor who means a lot to him, have his property raided by agents. They're going through all of his stuff. They've arrested him. They're seizing items. Basically removed him from his teenage mind. He's like, this is fucking horrible. This is what he's been telling me about the whole time. This overreaching government. He's took this man and removed him from my life, basically. Right. As a young man, you know, in Eric's viewpoint. And uh, this is exactly what he's talking about. And he has a right to bear arms. If he wants that machine gun, he can have it. They're coming to get us. Yeah. We all got to be scared. Here's a prime example of it. So could you imagine what's going through Eric's mind at that point? When Pat realized her kids were not receiving the kind of education she believed they deserved. In 1984, she took her family to Shell City, Missouri where they joined the Christian Identity Movement, led by Dan Gaiman. Wow, that sounds like a really open-minded movement. The family lived in a trailer owned by the church and began receiving a Christian education. And I Mm. say that loosely. Eric fell in love with a girl named Joy. Now, this is something that I find very interesting about Eric Rudolph. I had to share it with you guys. She knitted him a sweater which he maintained as a prized possession, he can actually be seen wearing it in one of his mugshot photos. Wow. And when he was eventually located, which we'll get to with the story here, it was one of the few items that he had with him when he was on the run. So they found like some personal items that were wrapped. Really meant something to and him. And kept away. That were and... secured. And this was one of the yes. items. Was the wow. sweater. That had been knitted by this woman 20 years or so before. Okay, so she definitely left a mark on him, right? By 1985, the Rudolph family was kicked out of the church, which seems like that'd be kind of hard to do. Well, I don't don't know. Well, maybe she just acted normal. They (laughs) kick you out of the church. Yeah. Joy broke up with Eric, and some years later, She committed suicide and took her two young children with her as well. When Eric learned of this suicide, he was deeply devastated by this. He never quite recovered from his unrequited love. Well, that's pretty sad that she would take her own life and that of her two children. Well, if you read up on the Christian identity movement, they just seem like they got some pretty fucked up views. So I guess, like, if you're part of that. Maybe it makes more sense. Well, I was just thinking, well, shit, if I was in the middle of this fucking crazy cult, I'd probably shoot myself, too, but... Oh, and your kids. Well, I don't... I mean, they have some really out-there views about race and... I don't know. Okay. Homosexuality. Oh, gosh. You know. Damn queers is coming to get us all. Yeah, that kind of thing. Okay. I mean, they're like, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like any other. It's, one of those, it's, it's a cult, guys. It's an extreme. It's a cult. It's a cult. Religion. Let's be honest. It's and just another form of a cult. There's not a whole lot of Christianity going on. No. This is a lot of, like, hate happening right. in this group. I feel like if you grew up in that, it could explain why you might blow your brains out. And kill your kids. Because of some, yeah, because you've been fucking brainwashed. Right. Some oh, because shit. you're not there to shepherd them through this horrible times that we're in with all the brown and not white people and all the. Right? I guess. Okay. Eric got his GD, as I mentioned before, and enrolled at Western Carolina University, where he was an undeclared major for about a year before he dropped out of school. Western Carolina had not been Eric's first choice. He had applied to Purdue, but was rejected. 
they had told him that perhaps he should try a community college for a semester or two, bring his grades up, get more, um, you know, like advanced math. Yeah, get thing. a little bit less racist. That he wasn't oh. getting, I guess, when he got his GED. You know, right. more of the college preparatory types of classes. So basically, try a little bit, reapply, and he was like, yeah, I'm going to go to Western. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he then joined the United States Army in 1987. Eric had hoped to be in an elite military unit, maybe like Special Forces or the Rangers, but mm, didn't happen. He became disillusioned when he was sent to an infantry regi- regiment um, of the 10. 10- um, I'm see, I can't talk, y'all. I've had wine of the 101st Airborne. What the ah. fuck, y'all? <laughs> wow, the storied 101st Airborne. Yeah, you don't want to be part of that. No, because he's infantry, and he really thought he was going to be like this big dropping out of shit and like doing death dives Rambo to the earth. And, okay, get to the chopper. Get like, to the copter. Yeah, I don't know. Is it chopper or copter? I don't know. Okay. But yeah, so he's not doing any of that stuff. That's a boy movie. He's just a grunt, basically, and it's below his station. Yeah, and I've been in the military, and I can tell you, if you're like a grunt or like an undesignated seaman, or I mean, those are kind of a shitty job. Wow, so the seamen can just go anywhere because they're undesignated? No, that really means you're probably going to be like cleaning toilets and shipping paint. Well, somebody's got to do that, though. It's not fun. Somebody's got to do that. Well, they do. But keep... it's still not fun. It's okay. not like the fun, romantic part of being like, right. well, I'm in the military. Right. I'm a seaman. I I drive the boat. No? Actually, the undesignated seamen do drive the boat. Oh, wow. So that's a good job. Yeah, they actually do. They have like E1 and E2, like undesignated. Man the wheel? Seam- yeah. They're manning the wheel? Yeah. Oh, wow. They, they drive the boat. And okay. Then, like, the captain will come in and be like, you know, two knots to the left or whatever. Yeah, that's a big job. That's very important. So I'm fighting for those guys and girls. <laughs> well, in the army, Eric stayed in trouble because he was sleeping on the job, Uh-oh. mocking authority, Imagine and that. smoking the Mary Jane. So he's getting high as hell, talking about y'all ain't going to tell me what to do. And imagine that coming from someone who thinks their entire government system is some shit. Well, the fact that he even joined the I know, military right? after having these very anti-government views yeah. is just really weird. It is weird. I don't understand. He was discharged before his enlistment was up. I believe he got like a general, like didn't get a dishonorable, but it was like a general other... Under, so he kind of lucked out in the middle. Yeah. Which is still not like a good discharge. Well, it's not an honorable discharge. It's just go on somewhere. Yeah, pretty much. Just leave. Others said Rudolph often made racist remarks and resented having black senior enlisted personnel give him orders. Yeah, it's not going to work in the military. No. Because there's a lot of white, black, and brown up in the military. Yeah, you have people of all races. Right. And, you know, the military doesn't discriminate in how they promote. No, if you come and work the process, you have an opportunity, just like everybody else. You're going to do your job. You're going to get good evals. You're going to take tests. Yeah. You're going to get promoted. Right. And so if you have a problem with the non-white, then don't go in the military is all I can tell you. Yeah, he did not like that. And therefore, he was kicked out on his ear where he belonged. Ooh, he wow. returned to North Carolina where he began his life of becoming a ghost. He started doing carpentry with his brother, Dan. He never used a bank account, paid cash for everything. He lived alone, often lying to family and sometimes girlfriends about his whereabouts. Really weird. Isn't that weird? Eric was a prodigious reader of history, philosophy, Russian literature. So he's not a dummy. No, it sounds like I mean, he's a, a, a very well read, fairly intelligent, intelligent person. Guy. But he has some really strange views. He and rarely went into town, only to buy a few groceries, which were things like oatmeal, milk, eggs. He had this very basic diet. Okay. He wasn't eating any Oreos, making so, any fancy Thai food. No, I will give him this much credit. He believes this set of things he lives it oh he's committed 
he's committed to staying off and the grid disciplined. and staying. Yeah, I mean, that takes so much effort in your daily life to kind of like people not know what you're doing and where you're at every day and not like just, you know, buying into all the extravagance of American lifestyle and all these things. He kept everything so plain and so off, you know, kind of on the edge of society. The only thing he seemed to like splurge on or treat himself with was video rentals. Oh, not the VHS. Oh, yeah, the VHS tapes. Wow. January 30th, 1998, Eric makes a purchase in a local store and disappears. He purchased $180 in food, and I believe it was from the Bilo grocery store. Because by now, he's seen the news and he knows. They know who he is. That and they're he looking for him. Is the Birmingham abortion bomber. Right. Hunters find his truck at the bottom of a mountain in the Nanahala Forest. Investigators later find a receipt in the truck detailing dry foods with high caloric content, leaving the FBI to speculate that if Rudolph rationed his calories and if he's a survivalist and he understands what the human body needs how much energy he's going to be exerting, that he could probably survive for about six months on the grocery items he purchased. So just as one purchase, he has six months worth of supplies. If he... Possibly. Possibly rations them in the... Which he probably doesn't know that shit because he's been eating and living and breathing this shit for years. In the initial search for Rudolph, they begin at his Caney Creek Road trailer, which was in Murphy, North Carolina. It says a rental property. He paid cash for this property. Didn't have any uh, telephone line. There was no phone at the house. It was mostly furnished. So he's living this really sparse existence. Right. In this rental. The property was scoured, but few things were found. Again, he was living a very sparse existence. The trailer was furnished, as I mentioned. They found a few items inside, including his most recent VHS rental, which I thought was kind of funny. It's Cole the Conqueror. Oh, that's classic. It was still in the VHS player. So he he watched it. They found empty oatmeal wrappers in the trash, milk in the fridge, and a few books, such as the Bible, which he had underlined passages almost like a coded diary with highlights on things like Dominance over women, duties to strike out at God's enemies, Old Testament stuff like Leviticus 18.22, you know, an eye for an eye. Ah. February 14, 1998, Rudolph is officially charged in the Alabama abortion clinic bombing. But he's already taken off. I don't know where the man be. A lot of people said they never suspected this type of thing from Rudolph, but some close family members begged to differ. One of his sister-in-laws recalled Rudolph making offhanded comments about homosexuality. His own brother, Jamie, was an out gay man living in New York City. And just a few months before the Birmingham bombing, Eric and his mom had visited his brother, and he seemed to have a good relationship with his brother. That's weird. The more information that started to pile up on Rudolph, the more the FBI realized they had a 1990s manhunt looking for an 1890s man. He would prove to be a formidable foe for authorities. He was able to elude arrest for five years. That's crazy. That is really crazy. Back in that, back in those days, the winters were harsher in this area. And just, even if I camped, for five years and could have my campsite the way I wanted it, you know, dress it out, make all my shelters, you know, flamboyant and obvious. <laughs> well, my, can't my shelters be sassy? Sure. So, I mean, I, you know, like just all the, you know, as good as I could make them. But to do that on a scale where you have to remain hidden the entire time and you can't do big, obvious shelters, you can't have a cool-ass campsites with everything you can dream of. That's crazy. Five years of primitive... Primitive, hidden, on the move, you know, all that. No resupply, no going to the store and getting all the stuff you want when you want to. That's pretty crazy. 
Authorities pieced together that Rudolph's reign of terror actually began in Atlanta at the Centennial Olympic Park, where the 1996 Summer Games were underway. On July 27, 1996, attendees were enjoying the revelry when around 1.20 p.m. an explosion rocked the park. Two people died and 110 were injured. A security guard named Richard Jewell, which is basically like a household name at this point, yeah. was dealing with some rowdy teenagers. He went for help, and when he returned, he saw this abandoned backpack in the area. Bomb specialists came in and ordered the area to be evacuated. The bomb exploded. Let me tell you a little bit about this bomb. This is a fucking just masterpiece of a bomb. Yeah, from a, in, in a bomb perspective. <laughs> Three metal pipes, 12 inches long, 2 inches thick, 1 and a third pounds of Accurate Arms number 9 smokeless powder, electric matches inserted into drilled holes in the pipes. Now, these electric matches are used in pyrotechnics, and they're pretty much available online now, but you can get them, like, wherever you would buy fireworks or order fireworks. Right. So this is, like, not a tough thing to access when he was building this bomb. Each pipe had... Four rows of masonry nails. 45 nails per row. The total pipe bomb, which was put in like an Alice pack, like they carry in the military, together weighed 45 pounds. Right. 30,000 law enforcement members were assigned to protect the Olympic Games that year. Rudolph later insisted civilian casualties were not his intention and were a mistake. He aimed to take out law enforcement who would respond to the threat. Right. He actually uh, called in a bomb threat for the area. Yeah. But um, due to some logistic inconsistencies, it was not uh, um, communicated quickly enough to evacuate the area. So allegedly, according to him, his intentions were evacuate the area, you know, cops, various agencies would flood the area to respond, and then it would would go off. Right. And so he's looking to just scar the federal government, if you will, you know, uh, uh, attack the federal government. But that's not how it worked out. He was like, I'm a motherfucking cop killer. Yeah, basically. He also uh, put a, um, a steel plate in the back of the Alice pack to try to direct the blast, yes. which it didn't do because it was such a large pipe bomb, the largest in yeah, American history. the bomb in Atlanta was the biggest pipe bomb ever constructed and used in the United States. Right. And so he tried to direct the blast with a steel plate, which is almost like an improvised Claymore mine, if you will. And uh, at some point, you know, authorities thought, hey, this person has had military training of some type. Jewel, who later was considered a hero for saving more than two dozen lives, was initially considered a prime suspect. He was cleared about three months after the bombing, but a dark cloud loomed over him until Rudolph's arrest. Richard Jewel died of a heart attack in 2007 at the age of 44. And of course, now there's the film. Right. Is it Clint Eastwood? I think so. He directed a, that. And yeah, some big thing that's coming out. But um, Jewel actually settled out of court with CNN. Uh, he sued them, I think, for defamation, if you will, for $500,000. They, like, ruined his life with this. Yeah, well, they thought he was the hero cop scenario where you uh, plan a device, then you find the device, if you will, in quotations, and then you save everybody. everybody. So you're the hero, but, but you actually cause the situation. That was not the case here. But they thought possibly, you know, and, and one reason uh, some of the ATF agents believe that that's not the case, this hero cop scenario, if you will, is because the device actually went off. It was dangerous. It was meant to kill and maim. And that's not typically what you find in these hero cop scenarios, if you will, with these false devices. And then, you know, you find it and then you get all the, you know, credit for finding it. Not to mention, he's just a fucking security guard. He's just a security guard. He's not making that much money. He's doing his job. <laughs> yeah. He notices this package. He did raise an alarm, and they did start to clear the area, 
and he really did save lives in the injury. So it's really sad, a kind of sad side note to this whole thing with Eric Rudolph that this uh, Richard Jewell got um, drug into it. And you know how the media is. Even back then. Oh, it was a circus. In 96, 97. I mean, they were already basically convicting this guy. Right. In the, you know, in the public yes. court of opinion. Right. And they're just like, oh, yeah. And they came up with all these other scenarios of what it could be. And, uh, and it wasn't what it was. And, uh, yeah, that affected that man very, uh, very directly. Yeah, it was a very adverse situation, I'm sure. Definitely. In 1997, after the Olympics, two bombs exploded in Atlanta in the suburb of Sandy Springs. That's where our friend Sunday is from. Holy shit. Injuring six people, an abortion clinic in the building is believed to be a target. So, there was like this big sort of facility, big building, office building, and there was an abortion clinic. Blows up. They assume it's probably because of because the abortion clinic's in there. Right. It's a multi-use building, though, right? Right, yeah. Okay. So, like a mixed-use sort of space. Okay. February 21st, 1997, a nail-laden device exploded at the Other Side Lounge, which is a gay and lesbian nightclub in Atlanta, and five people were injured. March 7th, 1998. Now, this is when Eric is already on the run and has vanished into the Nantahala Forest. Not a head Daniel Rudolph, which is Eric's older brother, videotaped himself cutting off his left hand with a radial arm saw in order to send a message to the FBI and the media. The hand was reattached. I, I'm flabbergasted. <laughs> this by, is the part that's fucking nuts. That's one of the craziest things I've ever heard. Honestly, I mean, re- looking at, digging into this story. This is one of the craziest things I've ever seen in any true crime story or any article I've ever read. He films himself cutting his left arm off with a saw in a, like just a shop setting, if you will, a garage or whatever. Yeah, he was a carpenter. Yeah. So he has the whole setup and I'm just like, Zzzz, and he films himself cutting his hand off to send a message to investigate. Talk about cutting off your nose to spite your face. What's the like, fucking message? What's the fucking message? What's the message? I don't know. I wear I, my brother's crazy as shit, running around blowing shit up, and I'm crazy. I'm gonna cut my hand off. What's the? I don't get the message. How, I, I don't know what the message was either. So he he filmed this and he went straight to the hospital to have his hand reattached. Yeah. Was so it, that's the so thing did that, it work fine? Uh, hell if I know. We need to follow up on that. Yeah, okay. we'll find him on Facebook yeah. and be like, yo, bro, how's hey, your hand? Hey, bro, can you stroke it with that hand? <laughs> I don't know. He probably has to jerk off with his left hand now. <laughs> his right hand. He cut off his left. Oh, did he? Yeah. Wasn't it left? Oh, yeah, it was left. Yeah. See, here I am assuming this man's... You uh, assumed his uh, dexterity? Dirty. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? I'm just assuming he's right-handed. How horrible of me. <laughs> But yeah, then he had it reattached. So okay. The whole thing is just fucking crazy. That's weird shit. Yeah. A task force set up at the Apple Tree Campground, which is off 1974 in Macon County, to find Rudolph. March 17, 1998, the task force investigating the Birmingham bomb is formerly, uh, I'm sorry, formally, <laughs> drinking, formally merged um, with these other like multi-agent um, parties. Right. So basically began like this big task force. Well, basically, Eric Rudolph's responsible for all these things. So all these different investigations are coming under some same umbrella. Yeah, because of the three bombs in Atlanta. Right. You've got the Birmingham. So these agencies all sort of join forces. Oh, so is all our red tape and bureaucracies in the same place. So all of these uh, multi-agent search parties began combing the thick mountain laurel and rugged terrain which is 500 acres in the Nantahala National Forest that covers Cherokee, Macon, Swain, and Clay Counties. It's a big fucking chunk of land. That's a big chunk of raw land. Yeah. There's uh, some of these areas that they tracked him to literally had no inroads, no asphalted roads, no logging roads, dirt roads, nothing. Like you literally have to set off by foot through these valleys and over these ridges and laurel thickets on foot. There's no other way. And a lot of people think that is why, you know, he was never found. Because these 
I'm sorry, if you bring a big group of people and all this search and all this energy and money and all this expense, when it comes down to digging through damn, you know, knee-deep leaves and these areas never traveled by humans, that shit gets old quick for people. I'm sorry, I don't care who you are. It really does. Well, imagine people who are not from this area right? trying to do this. And it's hard from a logistical standpoint. From keeping track of where you already been, where you're going to look next. I mean, it really is a nightmare. I mean, it really is a nightmare. It's one of the worst places in America that you could go try to search for someone. Rudolph became somewhat of a local hero for folks. Lake Inns Grill had a sign up that said Rudolph eats here. Theories abound that a network of sympathizers were hiding Rudolph in basements leaving food and supplies for him, and keeping his whereabouts unknown. In television interviews, many locals admitted they would not turn him into the FBI. Right. Which gave a slant to the entire area being anti-government and all this stuff, which I don't think quite is true. But, I mean, they really... You have some of that. You have some of that, but the media really took it and ran with that element of it. Well, they're trying to play up the stereotype that comes from, you know, back in the Appalachian hillbilly woods of the 1920s. Well, you're talking about prohibition. You got people moonshining and they don't right. like the revenueer and the tax man. From the big city. And they don't like the government. Right. And that kind of shit. They took that. Like, yeah, there's some of that sentiment. And Not- yeah, there are people around who still have that view a bit, but it's a fairly small percentage right and they they really did run and that's one thing that stood out to me in our research for this story is they took that small segment and these handful of people they interviewed and they really ran with that they were trying to paint us all here as all the people in murphy are anti-government and want to burn the white house down and all this shit and that's just simply not true basically most of the people murphy in that area in western north carolina period are just hardworking people who want to get through the day and, you know, have a have a house, have a, a school for their kids. And a lot of people, they're just regular working folks. Right. Yeah, exactly. Basically, they're not all anti-government and preppers and, you know, this apocalyptic bullshit that they drummed up. But that's what the national media does. Right. And there again, some of those people may have had grandpa, great-grandpa who maybe felt that way. Right. But, you know, it's just small trickles. It's not like they were trying to paint it out to be. Right. But that's what the national media does. They want to sensationalize everything. In July 1998, Rudolph is seen by George Nordman, who was a friend and also owned a health food store. Rudolph took about six months worth of food and supplies, and he left behind $500 for payment. So the story is Rudolph approached George Nordman and basically was like, I need your help. And Nordman refused to help him, and this is according to Nordman, but left the store right. for some time. And when he came back, Eric Rudolph had taken food, had left him $500 in cash, and had also taken Nordman's truck. So Eric had asked him for help. He said, I can't do that. But then he broke into his place, took what he wanted, according to him, and his truck. But left $500 cash in payment. Right. And then Nordman waited four days to report this information to authorities. Ah. So, it seems that he was a bit sympathetic. It's almost like, I'm just going to turn my head and pretend I don't see what you're doing. And I'm not helping you. No. I'm not seeing what you're doing. Lord, no. I'm not looking. But I'm seemingly sympathetic to you in either a personal respect or to your cause. And I'm only going to wait four days before I let people know. Yeah, because it's not like anybody notices the four or five hundred people in the area looking for you, federal agents and such. Totally innocent. Totally innocent. Totally innocent. Hey, own that shit, man. Just be like, I did... You know, whatever. He was a good guy. Even if even he say, was my friend. I didn't do. Di- I didn't believe what he, you know, did. But he was my friend, and I did know him. And yes, I did do this. And I'm a compassionate human who doesn't want to see somebody. And starve. I just don't want to see someone starve. Don't be a little bitch about it. Oh, I don't know what happened. <laughs> he was a bitch about it. 
<laughs> on October 14th, Rudolph is charged with the Olympic bombing and the bombing of the gay club and the abortion clinic in Georgia. He was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. A $1 million bounty was placed on Rudolph, which sent many bounty hunters to the area, including a former Green Beret named B. Greitz, who lasted about a week in the woods. And this B. Greitz fella, I guess he's got like some media kind of clout. Like, he like he's have, known or yeah, something? Yeah, I think he kind of had like a right, right. wing conservative type of talk okay. show maybe at some point, like a radio show. Okay, but that... And there's like some YouTube videos of him. And I guess within the certain kind of circle, he was kind of a known person. But the Woods of Murphy sent him running like a little bitch. Oh, so. no. The interview that I watched with this guy is like, he's all fucking gung-ho, and I'm a green beret, and I've got all these dudes. And we're I just want to bring him out safe, man. Like, yeah, exactly. And yeah. then he lasted like a week in the woods here. Right. And then, of course, went back to his comfy. Because it's rough, horrible house. terrain that <laughs> has no access. Many local law enforcement who were familiar with the terrain and area felt shut out of the investigation. Some would go on to say many of the federal officers would be standing around this command post drinking coffee all day, wearing clean uniforms that clearly showed they hadn't been in the woods doing a search at all. I'm going to say I saw that over and over. Various sources, multiple stories. I mean, we really dug on this story. Because it's a big story, let's be honest. And I believe that. I do believe that. They're talking about, so uh, you have them come in, take over your area, No, you know, no matter how you feel about it, good or bad. Edge out your jurisdiction. Push you out to the out, like, oh, we'll let you know if we need some help. But at the same time, you should be getting those good old boys that dig, dig ginseng, that coon hunt. hunt exactly. That know bear those hunt. bear hunt. Because bear hunters, Crawl up and down mountains where nobody goes. With dogs. With dogs. They go places nobody ever goes. These gullies, these valleys. And that would have been a really important resource to guide you through this area that you're unfamiliar with. Exactly. Oh, shit. <laughs> now, but I can imagine. That, and they just want to big dick everybody out of the way. But then you come and then you really don't know what the hell to do. Right? Because it's raw inaccessible area and but you're still going to like put up a big front like you're doing something i'm gonna stand here and drink coffee all and day. you're basically just burning money for nothing well that's exactly taxpayer money at that seemingly was happening exactly oh my God. on may 31st 2003 a 21 year old rookie police officer named jeffrey postel was making a routine nightly patrol at 4 a.m when he saw a shadowy figure digging through a dumpster behind a Save-A-Lot grocery store. Now, initially, Officer Postel suspected it was a burglary in progress. When approached, the man was unarmed and didn't try to run. Officer Postel ordered the man on the ground. He asks, you know, what's your name? The man tells him Jerry Wilson, and he said he wasn't carrying any kind of identification. He was passing through town from Ohio. The man claimed he was homeless and had been living under a bridge. Hungry, he was searching for some food and thought he would dig around in this dumpster to get some food. Officer Postel calls for backup. They arrive on the scene. And while the man was on the ground, another officer approaches and recognizes the man as the most wanted man in America, Eric Rudolph. Wow. Mr. Wilson was taken into custody under the safekeeping statute, which was a law designed to sweep vagrants and drunks off the streets for their own good. Okay. You know, we'll give you a warm place to sleep. A hot and a cot. In the backseat of Postel's cruiser, the young officer confronts the stranger and says, you're not who you say you are. And the man said nothing, but a big grin spread across his face. Once in booking, a photo of Eric Rudolph was rounded up. He finally admitted his identity, Eric Robert Rudolph. Rudolph told Postel, please let people know I'm not a monster. Okay. It was one of the few things he said to this young so officer. That's one of the first things he communicated back to society after all his time. 
that's interesting. Maybe I'm gonna get. I guess in his mind, he thought that's how he was. He was charged October thirteenth, two thousand three. On April eighth, two thousand five, the Department of Justice announced that Rudolph had agreed to a plea bargain under which he would plead guilty to all charges he was accused of in order to avoid the death penalty. The deal confirmed the FBI um, would be able to locate 250 pounds of dynamite that he had hidden in forests in western North Carolina. So he had more dynamite he could access if necessary. Oh, he had like, almost like booby traps set up. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, not I'm not glad for this stuff, but that's pretty wild. This guy really embraced this lifestyle and like, in his mind, he really felt like he was this lone warrior against this... vigilante, like yeah. Avenger. Yeah, no shit. Really. Yeah. So that was part of the plea agreement that he had to tell them where he had hidden all of these explosives. <sighs> well, shit, that's good in case the kid comes running along and gets blown the fuck up. Rudolph would rationalize his bombings as serving a greater cause of anti-abortion and anti-gay terrorism. <laughs> oh, yeah. We need that to keep the gays down? That's weird. Oh my god, they're going to make the world more fabulous. We can't the gays aren't bothering anything. They're helping everybody like get well-groomed and smell fresh. Right? Yeah. We need some like queer eye for this Drake guy. We do. He claimed in a statement that he was deprived... No, this is funny. He was depriving the government of sentencing him to death. Ah. I'm going to deny you the opportunity to kill me. Huh. You can't <laughs> kill me. He was sentenced to four life terms for the 1998 murder of a Birmingham police officer and two consecutive life sentences for the bombings in Atlanta. He was sent to the ADX Florence Supermax Federal Prison, which is in Colorado. Holy shit! Where he spends 22 and a half hours a day alone in his 80 foot, uh, 80 square foot concrete cell, which, if you really think about it, for a man like Eric Rudolph, is probably a punishment worse than death. To be trapped in this tiny cell. I've heard of that Supermax in Colorado, though. That's the big boy shit. That's like the biggest boy shit on American soil. I, I do believe uh, they've actually had some of these Al Qaeda terrorists, a few they've let on American soil there. Yeah, that's a big deal there. So, yeah, I could say. Well, uh, he is locked the fuck up there. Well, yeah. Is he alive? Yes. He's alive still? Well, yeah, honey. So we're still paying to feed this fucker? Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, at this point, he's been in prison there for like 16 years. Um, um, okay, cool. So you say that. Um, wow. So, yeah, I'm paying to feed this guy. Some of his writings have been published on the internet via the Army of God website, which is an anti-abortion website. No. In 2013, his book, Between the Lines of Drift, The Memoirs of a Militant, was published, but it was seized by the government. Um, they actually were only able to seize about $200 of the $1 million he owes in restitution. Oh, so you made 200 off that? And they cool. took it. Nice. And they had to disband, I guess, publishing. The they book. should just let it keep running. Maybe they've had $500 of that money back. Since then, the book has been republished on that Army of God website, where ah. you can find it now. Cool. And so one of our resources for this was a, a book called The Lone Wolf. Yes. Which is a really good book. And then, of course, we watched a ton of, like, documentaries, news clips. Yes. Read through so many newspapers. Yes. The Atlanta Constitution Journal, local newspapers. I have a couple of funny stories. I think they're kind of amusing about Eric Rudolph. Can I share those with you guys now? Yeah, spit it. Okay, so Murphy, North Carolina, where Eric Rudolph was living in this area, my family had a boathouse on the lake. The lake is Hiawassee um, for many years when I was <laughs> growing up, right? So at some point in the like late 90s, maybe early 2000s, my grandma and grandpa had gone over to the boathouse. You know, they would go over every spring and like open up the boathouse. Get it ready. Know, de-winterize it, de-weatherize it, all that. Clean it real, you know, my Nana was like one of those white glove cleaners. Of the, right. You know, she would go over there. It had to be just like sparkling clean. They got to open up the boathouse and my Nana was fucking furious because someone 
had broken into our boathouse, had made a mess, and didn't clean up after themselves. They slept in the bed, and then she was really pissed off because they ate her beanie weenies. No shit. Now, and this woman was like, uh, you know, she had the inventory down. She knew, she knew what beanie she weenies had she had. She had left like eight cans of beanie weenies right. in this boathouse from yeah. the last season. And they were not accounted for, and someone had eaten them, and then they had like left their mess. And she was so fucking mad, and she was convinced it was Eric Rudolph. And I mean, for years and years after, there's no telling up her until the woman died, she would tell people that that bastard Eric Rudolph had broken into her boathouse and ate her beanie weenies and didn't clean up after himself. He might have done it. I mean, maybe he was around there. No, totally. Yeah. But she was convinced. You think Eric Rudolph wouldn't dive in offshore and and swim out to a uh, a boathouse in we, the off season? Well, honey, you know, a lot of times they drain the lake. So sometimes our boathouse would be like... Yeah, so you could walk over there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's but something he would do. very convinced about this Beanie Weenie Who else is going to do that? Maybe teenagers? Think about it. I don't know. I mean, yeah, when would you a teenager? Like, let's go break into some off season boathouse, y'all. You need Beanie Weenie. They'd be might, like... I might do that. I, I really like Beanie Weenie. I'm going to be forthright on that. You do? Yeah, they're really good. So you would break in a boathouse and eat some beanie weenies? Well, I wouldn't eat somebody else's beanie weenies. I'd just go buy me some. Well, then I had this friend when I was a student at Western Carolina University, which happened to be during this time. Oh, my God. <laughs> I had this friend who lived in a trailer park that was sort of behind campus. Yeah. And it was a pretty shitty trailer park. Well, that's okay. I mean, no, I'm just saying it was like a student trailer park. So they had these trailers sort of like just shoved it on top of each other. It was not like a place where families right. were living. Right. I mean, it wasn't. It was just like, we're going to shove a bunch of shitty old trailers and we're going to charge these college students to live in these rundown. Right. And it was full all the time. Oh, God, yeah. Right. But, and But the rent was cheap and these places were just shitholes. Like I had some other friends who lived there that they literally had a hole in their fucking like bathroom. Nice. And that you could see the dirt. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> it was just terrible. So my friend's living there, and he had this old lady neighbor, and she was kind of a nut from what I understand. And she saw him, and he was tall and brunette and kind of matched this description of Eric Rudolph. Yeah. And he had a beard at the time. She called the cops and claimed that Eric Rudolph was renting the next door trailer to her. Oh. And so this college kid's like coming home from his fucking, you know, history class, coming in to make a sandwich and is being like swarmed by local law enforcement. No shit. Who, you know, insists that they come in and have a talk with him. Huh. And he had to basically prove his identity. Prove he wasn't Eric Rudolph. Yes. All That's because awesome. this crazy old neighbor lady thought he matched the description. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, that just goes to show you how. <laughs> Much of a grip, this whole story, the Eric Rudolph situation had on this entire area. Well, it's true. And those for 300 miles. ripples, because I've yeah. spoken to other people right. who are from here or who have some connection to Nanahala or Bryson City or Murphy or Andrews, Topton, um, you know, the that Macon County part of Nanahala that have some story to tell you about, right. oh, well, this happened or this happened or, oh, we think he broke in to the restaurant where I worked or... You right, know, oh, all these different stuff. they were helping him, yeah. Everything that happened during that point was attributed well, to him. he ate my Nana's Beanie Weenies, and she is not happy about it. And I feel like I should write him a letter and just be like, bro, did you eat her Beanie Weenies? Did you? I need to know. Yeah, he might answer back. <laughs> Maybe. Okay. Well, this has been the story of Eric Rudolph. It was a big deal. It was a very big deal in this area. It was. Thanks for tuning in. And, of course, if you can't get enough of Mountain Murders, and all of our long-winded ridiculousness, you can find us on Patreon. For as low as a dollar a month, you can sign up and get bonus content. We're over there right now. We are? Waiting on Patreon. I thought we were just right here. For our people. I'm so confused. I'll have a shot. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with more Mountain Murders.